Welcome to the Future Think podcast from the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. I'm Heather Ross. Together with my colleague, Andrew Maynard, we chat with a variety of experts on and off campus about science, technology, innovation, and policy. This podcast brings you the hallway conversations where we think about our collective future. Today's episode is the fourth in our five-part series on innovation, society, and the circular economy for the 2016 Disruptive Innovation Festival. Andrew and I talked with Clark Miller about energy transitions and the circular economy. Clark is the Associate Director for Faculty and an Associate Professor here with us in the School for the Future of Innovation and Society. He's also a Senior Sustainability Scientist in the Julie Ann Wrigley Global Institute of Sustainability here at ASU. He's currently leading a major research effort focused on the social consequences of energy system change. So as you can imagine, he has a lot to say about energy transitions and the circular economy. If you're listening between November 18th and November 20th, we would love to have you join the Disruptive Innovation Festival conversation. You can visit the festival online at thinkdiff.co. That's T-H-I-N-K-D-I-F dot C-O. And locate our podcast events to add your comments. You can also leave us comments on iTunes or SoundCloud anytime or tweet us at futurethinkpod. As always, if you like what we're doing, please tell your friends, and thank you for listening. So Clark, energy transitions, and the circular economy. And the circular economy. So uh, the first point, I think, to understand about the circular economy model uh, is that it's not entirely circular. There is an enormous input that comes into the circular, the biological uh, economy that's the model for the circular economy, and that is energy. Right. Mm -hmm. And it comes in uh, largely from the sun, Mm -hmm. uh, and it drives an enormous amount of the work. And this is crucial because in order to take apart the things that die and then decay, uh, requires a lot of energy. Right. right. And we know that as well on the human side of the economy uh, from looking at the history of recycling, where uh, recycling, one of the biggest challenges of recycling is that it re- requires an enormous amount of energy. And so it's a high cost process right. mm-hmm. to do. And that cost, in many cases, has made it prohibitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're beginning to do better around certain kinds of things, but it's still a challenge. So you said once, Clark, that the circular economy, or the biological system writ large, right, is not actually circular. So this is what you mean by that. that right. Yeah. And, and so we're going to have to have that renewable energy input uh, it, it, we're going to actually put it differently. We're going to have to have the energy input right, to right. make the economy circular. Yeah. Uh, so that means we're going to have to have uh, a uh, form of energy production that is low cost, high energy, right. and doesn't create challenges for 
the concept of circularity. Right. 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 Doesn't dump a lot of materials out into sure. we're, we're, you know, we're waste to, materials. We're, we're trying to make these forth. cycles as efficient as efficient as possible. But right. with any sort of cycle, you need some energy input to actually drive mm -hmm. that cycle. Mm -hmm. Right. And you yeah. don't want that energy input to create be creating more problems. Right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yes. So which is yes. why people talk about renewable energy, and yep. we have renewable energy sources that come from the sun, that come from the tides, that come from geothermal. These other processes that are not infinite and are not forever, but are probably long enough yeah. <laughs> in right, the right, sense right. of tens of thousands, if not millions sure. of years, mm -hmm. uh, sort of sources. Uh, but then we need to figure out how we're going to get there. Sure. So, so we're talking about energy transitions, and I guess this is sort of where you're now going with this. How do we transition from one type of way in which we generate and use like, um, energy to other ways of generating energy and actually utilizing it. Right, and so we, a lot of people think about the circular economy as a transformation of the manufacturing sector. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, we're exactly talking about the same thing when we talk about the kind of energy transition that would be required to create a circular economy okay. in the energy sector. Okay. Right. Right. A wholesale transformation of the kinds of industrial uh, enterprises and systems mm -hmm. that we have available for us and inevitably what we know about large-scale technological system change is that the, these systems are connected into our social relationships, our political relationships, our market dynamics, our market structures yeah. and so all of those things have to change too. Right. And so we're not just talking about an energy transition in the historical sense of a fuel shift or a technology shift. We're talking about a wholesale reconfiguration right. of the organization of the production and transmission and consumption so, of energy. So just to put that into context and breaking it down, although I, you can't really break this down into sort of linear components, but I'm going to do that anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so you've, you've got the technologies to generate energy, renewable energy, whether it's, it's solar, um, whatever. Um, you've then got the systems within which they work to make sure that you can actually distribute that energy and get it to places that, that you need. And then you've got the, the socioeconomic systems, um, put geopolitical systems in there as well, that need to be in place to make sure those systems work and those, en those technologies actually work. Starting with the technologies, I, how far behind the curve are we in terms of technologies that are really viable in terms of renewable en energy systems? And, and what I'm trying to get at is where is the big blockage here? Is it in the technologies? Is it in society? Or is it in the broader socioeconomic systems? I would say uh, today we have available, if we wished, the uh, technological capabilities right. to deploy global scale renewable energy. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so I think that the challenge is in the transition. Right, right. In other words, this is a complex set of multiple systems that are intersecting with one another. Mm -hmm. yep. And to change that to a new complex system of intersecting systems. That's the challenge, yeah. yes. That's the challenge. Yes. And that's actually, uh, I'm actually quite encouraged mm -hmm. by everything that I see in the energy sector at the moment. There's widespread recognition that this has got to happen. Mm -hmm. 
Um, there's an enormous amount of experimentation happening at small scale. Mm -hmm. But what I think people still don't have a good grasp on uh, is the complex, the human complexity of making this change, right. mm -hmm. uh, which is going to create then a lot of risks mm -hmm. and downside. I mean, not just risks, downside harm. Sure, right, sure, <laughs> right, right. Sure. Uh, you know, that the, the people look at coal miners and they played an outsized sort of role as, you know, forgive the phrase, canaries in the coal mine in this last election mm -hmm. with respect to a community of people who are being hard hit right. by the energy transition. Um, they're just another bad phrase, the tip of the iceberg in terms of the scale of the fossil fuel employment infrastructure right, right, in a country like the United States or any other significant energy producer or consumer, right? And so, right. And so trying to figure out, you know, what does that vulnerability look like? I mean, actually, there's been very little effort to map those vulnerabilities, yeah. to understand who those communities are. Um, you know, there are going to be complexities that have to do with uh, uh, the politics of political economic transformation. Right, right. right? Mm -hmm. These entities are big entities. Twelve of the top uh, 20 companies on the global Fortune 500 are, mm -hmm. the, so, you know, the so big... This really Sorry, our energy company. Yeah, so, so this really gets to this, this idea of, of disruption. And so certainly in, in my experience, anytime you're looking at a transition from one complex system to another, um, it's never smooth. It's never evolutionary. Somehow something radical has got to happen to either, either break or somehow compromise the original system so that you force that change yeah. and that re-equilibration of the system. Yeah, I think if climate change were not on the global political agenda, forget it. There's right. just nothing mm -hmm. that Th that's going to force that. This yes. Because yeah. so and if we think about disruption the Clay Christensen model of disruption, right? It has to be not just that something has to be broken, right, about the original system, but the alternative has to be more appealing in right, some right. way to some group. Right. And you know what what he says and which has been widely disputed, you know, let's put that out there, but what he says is that the disruptive innovation is not necessarily better than the existing thing, but it's often cheaper or more easily accessible. The, the, there is there is some value. There in is actually something. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But let me let me sort of step into at that point because I think that there are there are two things going for the energy transition in this context. One of which is widely recognized, and I think the other of which is not widely recognized, but were it re better recognized, it would be a big driver. Mm -hmm. So the first is, this is big money. Right. Mm -hmm. If yep. you can produce and sell electricity competitively or energy or fuels mm -hmm. competitively, yep. you can make a lot of money. Yep. Sure. And so, you know, there's, there's an upside mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. to selling energy. Um, the less well-recognized piece is that fundamentally energy is deeply connected 
to human well-being and human progress. Right, right. And so there's a real opportunity here in this transformation to really optimize the social value that we get out of our energy systems if we can do design right. Right. Mm -hmm. It's a design opportunity. Right. And that's where I worry a lot, actually, about the low-cost push. Yeah. Right? And rather want to emphasize the high social value mm-hmm. uh, perspective, right? So that if, if, I mean, I think about it this way. If I'm going to spend $50 trillion and a huge lot of political capital to transform one of the largest industries on the planet mm-hmm. from top to bottom mm-hmm. and go through all that trouble, and it will be trouble, I want to get more out of that than zero carbon. I want to get a whole lot more that's, out of that that's got to be than a much zero carbon. But, right? Right. But, but you still, so you can actually, th- I think, make a compelling case for the transition over a long period of time. Um, but you're looking at generational changes because yeah. you're really having to change society and the way people think. The the thing that I constantly bump up against is you're trying to do that at the same time that non-renewable energy sources are very accessible. Mm-hmm. So the metaphor might be you're talking to people about eating habits and assuming they're a meat eater, you have a beautiful juicy steak in front of them and you tell them, leave that alone, you've got to go and get your salad. And you've got to walk yeah. sort of five miles to get the salad. Exactly. And the next day, the same. And the next day, mm-hmm. the same. How do you train people to um, not eat the steak that's in front of them and go for another um, source of, of food? Yeah. And it's, it, it's pushing the point. Right. But the fact is, no matter how much you try and push that transition, there are always those reserves of gas and coal and oil sitting there that seem to be easy pickings. So, so there's, yeah, go ahead. I, I mean, I think two things. First off, there's an enormous history in humanity of moral conviction. Right. And there's no question in my mind that that, that's, that is already at play in this space in an enormous way. Climate science community right. is constantly saying that no one listens to that they have a problem which you cannot see, mm-hmm. you cannot smell, right. you cannot feel. And there are four billion people on the planet that believe that it's a significant enough problem that they need to take serious action to address it right. and maybe do exactly what you're saying, mm-hmm. walk away from it. Right, 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 right. right. right? So that is an enormous moral is. victory. Now, yes. there may be three billion more to go. <laughs> right, right. But that is an enormous, both moral and, and, and intellectual victory for, for yes. sort of a statement of the, how powerful humanity can be. Yes. So that's one. Yep. The second is, it actually isn't going to be that much longer before renewable energy, writ large, is the cheapest form of electricity. Right, right, right. Cheapest form of energy on right. the planet. It just isn't going to be that much longer. Yeah. And so, you know, I do agree, I do worry a little bit about the sort of planetary boundaries kinds of arguments that say we don't have very long left to make this transition. And I do wish we would have started when sure. we started thinking about these issues in 1965 to 
try to figure some of this stuff out, right? It would have yeah. given us more time. Yeah. Um, I do think that uh, a feature of the circular economy applied to the energy sector is going to turn out to be really important. We're going to have to invent technologies and deploy them in a fairly broad scale to take carbon out of the atmosphere right. uh, in the short term. Mm -hmm. at any rate. Mm -hmm. Now that's a long-term tax mm -hmm. that I think we probably can't sustain for terribly long. So this isn't a let the coal and oil industries continue to pollute forever and we'll just suck it out. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. We, you know, that's not going to work. But I think as a short-term measure we are going to have to figure out how to implement that yeah. carbon recycling idea. Right, mm -hmm. yes. Yeah. Uh, in order to make things work. But I do think that we are, we are already seeing. Mm -hmm. I mean, here's an illustration. There was a plant recently, solar facility, recently built in the Middle East, 2.3 cents per, per kilowatt hour. Okay. That's at the level that coal-fired power plants produce pre any right, mm -hmm. right. regulation of their pollutants. So, so you can certainly right. see this tipping point where you're combining the, the cost of power yeah. with the, the, the social drivers to transition to a, a different system. Mm -hmm. And certainly I think those play together. What do you do though with the communities that are still claiming that their jobs and their livelihoods are being threatened? Yep. In fact, there are two questions there. The first is, um, is this a small community with a very large voice or is this a significant community? And secondly, how, no matter how big or how small they are, how do you transition those communities to a, a new life, a new way of, of gaining their income? Because that's got to be part of the transition Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. I'm in complete agreement with that. So the answer is it's a big community. Right. Um, uh, we, we got a taste of that uh, in, with the Deepwater Horizon spill. Uh -huh. Right. Because the Obama administration imposed a moratorium on new drilling, right. and it created an enormous social backlash yes. yep. along the Gulf Coast states uh, because they recognize, right, it's not just the people who work on the oil platforms. Mm -hmm. It's all the people who the sell ecosystem them yeah. wires yep. and ball bearings and, and the people who move them back on their boats back and forth to the platforms sure. and people who sell them groceries. And the people who sell hotel space to the yep. 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 people within the industry who move around. Yep. And I mean, it, it, the, at Boeing, when I used to work for Boeing, we would say that every job at Boeing was somewhere between five and ten jobs mm -hmm. in, the yes. in the Seattle economy. Sure. Yeah. Yes. Right? And, and I think that that, and, and then every job is three to four people in a household. Right, mm -hmm. that it supports, yes. Right, and so, you know, the, the implications are huge. So I, so I think it's big. Right. Um, and so I absolutely think it's something we absolutely have to take account of in looking at these transitions. And then the answer, to me, has to be planning. Right. I know that's a bad word in this country. <laughs> um, but we have to sit down with these communities and work with them to talk about what the long-term mm -hmm. economic future of their communities 
looks like. Mm -hmm. I think of it in exactly the same way as we think about our energy futures work. I want to sit down with the city of Phoenix, for example, and say, in 2050, what do we want our energy system to look like? And how do we want it to be feeding a great life right. mm -hmm. in Phoenix? We can have the same conversation. What do we want yep. the future of, these, of, an, of a community mm -hmm. Uh, that's been dependent on a coal mine to look like. I mean, frankly, a, you know, a congressional legislation that funds a few cross-training programs, the one that I saw funded the other day to turn coal miners into unmanned aerial vehicle pilots, several million dollars to create 75 new pilots. I mean, we, we know it doesn't work. So doesn't actually, work. We, we, we've actually, so not only in, in the US, but also in the, the UK and other places, we've got decades of experience right. of what does not work yep. with these sort of transitions with communities. Right. So we must have enough information to get a better idea of what might work moving forwards. Right. And so, you know, I mean, let me take yesterday's election as, a, as an example. What was compelling? to the folks, not just in this industry, but across a whole range of industries that have been de in decline in this country. What was compelling? A vision for a future that looked like a future that they wanted to live in. Right. Mm -hmm. And a commitment to making that happen. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, there are challenges associated with that, but, you know, I think that what we need to provide is as compelling a vision and compelling a commitment yep. around an alternative future that's not go back to what we had right, before. Right, right, it's, it's, right. It's almost like you go back to that earlier analogy. It's really a bad analogy, but I'm still going to stick with it. It's almost like in front of you, you don't have the steak, but you have the salad. The salad is all you've known. And the salad is what you desperately want to keep. Mm -hmm. And there's a steak there sitting over there. But you're saying, I'd rather have the salad I've got now rather than plan for that steak in the future. <laughs> and, I, and, and it's bad because I would rather have something other than steak there. But, right, but right. somehow the transition has chocolate got to be cake. chocolate cake. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so the idea I is to, to have our chocolate cake and the eat it. <laughs> but, but somehow, and it gets back to this planning and this strategy, how do you plan for a future where people's lives are better? rather than just sticking with the status quo, which, to be honest, for many people, if, um, if they were going to admit it, they'd say, it's what I've got, it isn't brilliant, but what I know. How do you transition to something which is better in the future? And I think the thing that I wonder about is for people who aren't in, you know, I think here in the United States, we think about, ah, oh, these coal mining communities and, you know, living near a poverty level and things like this. If we look worldwide, major users of energy are coming from levels far below levels of poverty far beyond right. what coal mining communities so how does one communicate a vision a shiny vision of an alternative energy future right. to communities like that how can you get there so let me um, just offer an idea the, the way that we've talked about innovation in this country for the last 50 years has focused on the idea 
that the innovators in this world are the scientists and engineers who sit inside closed rooms, often with computer terminals. Um, we occasionally feed them pizza. <laughs> and they do amazingly creative things. To me, this is about creating a vision of innovation, which is distributed throughout society. Right. We need every community in this country to be working on its own innovation. Right. Not in the sense of new, exciting widgets, mm -hmm. but in the sense of renewing and expanding and advancing the strength of the community the strength of the work that the community is doing, the opportunities that are available mm -hmm. uh, for the people in those communities. You know, I went when I was a faculty member at the University of Wisconsin on a tour of the state sponsored by the uh, newspaper foundation, family foundation uh, because they recognized that most of the faculty were not from Wisconsin mm -hmm. and had no idea mm -hmm. what the state was like. And so they took, us, they took groups around every year to see the different parts of the state and to talk with people in the communities. I will tell you the single most important thing that I heard from dozens of communities on that trip was my children are going to leave home, they're going to go to the University of Wisconsin, and they're not going to come back right? Mm -hmm. because there's nothing for them here. Right. Those people all voted yesterday or the day before, sorry, the day before. Um, we have to find a way to create excitement and enthusiasm and, uh, and opportunity that's driven from the bottom up yeah. in every community. We need a new model of innovation. Right. Mm -hmm. And I hope that that's something that we can contribute to in this school, whether it's thinking about the circular economy or thinking about something else. But it's got to be about how do we distribute all throughout society this impulse to innovate, to make people's lives better, to create new opportunities. Right, and to build a better future together. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And I would add, as we wrap up here, just one thing to that, in that innovation need not be ultimately transformative in one fell swoop. I think that we need mm -hmm. to really promote the idea of iterative innovation. Right. Right. And perhaps more importantly, I mean, I don't know if iterative, maybe this is what you mean, but non-disruptive. I mean, in the sense of, yeah. <laughs> right, a, a, a model of innovation that creates change. Right, right. But in non-disruptive so, so, so I think you need yeah. the disruption in terms of doing things differently. Yeah, yeah. But you can have disruption which isn't harmful. So you think about it yeah. from a, a risk perspective. Mm -hmm. You don't want a sort of trail of, of harmed people behind you in yeah, order yeah. to get to where you want to be. Yes, if one could remove the pejorative sense from mm -hmm. disrupt and yes. disruption, right? Yes. So I think at the end of the day, and this for energy transitions, I think is true, but I think it can. It's true for 
any kind of innovation and any kind of non-pejorative disruption, right, is that the key is empowering a vision of local iterative innovation action for individuals. Yes, which is then part of a much larger ecosystem of innovation. Correct. Yes. All right, so just do that, and that'll be awesome. We fixed it. Not yes. individuals, I think communities. Communities. Well, but individuals but have to do their thing as um, part of a community. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And the thing that gives me hope is that the new energy systems are not nearly so... dependent on large-scale centralization right. yep. as the old ones. Yes. Yep. And so there are opportunities for new kinds of economic models, financial models, to be built around them that can take those revenue streams that energy systems inevitably produce mm -hmm. and reinvest them. Yes. And there we have in it. Communities. Circular. We got that. Bam. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. For more where that came from, check out the School for the Future of Innovation and Society at sfis.asu.edu. The Future Think podcast is produced with the support of the School for the Future of Innovation and Society and the Risk Innovation Lab at Arizona State University. Our music is by Mark Van Hare. Please subscribe. You can find us on iTunes and SoundCloud and on Twitter at FutureThinkPod.